Hello and welcome to a special episode of Georgie's Stripping the Dipping podcast. I am your unusual co-host, F1 Blag, and today we have another fantastic engineer to meet you today. So this is Rami Edirisinga. Rami, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. Uh, nice to meet you, Blag. Fantastic. Uh, so the first question I always ask is if you're introducing yourself to someone new, um, how would you introduce yourself? Who's, who's Rami? Um, so I am um, an engineer at Williams. Um, I work on the cooling system. And I guess um, ethnicity-wise, I'm of Sri Lankan heritage um, and born in the UK and grew up in the US. Okay. I mean, like, because we can hear, I can hear a sort of Atlantic lilt. in your Yeah. Accent, sort of. When did you move to the US? Uh, we moved in 1990. So I, I was like two years old at the time. Ah, we're of a similar vintage. Fantastic, you know. Okay, uh, where where did you move to in the in the US? Uh, Los Angeles. That's okay. So you moved for the weather. Hopefully, I don't know. I presume your parents had some good work out there. Uh, yeah, uh, my my father was in the real estate business, so at that time it was um, quite hot in Los Angeles. I can imagine. Yeah. Okay. So, like, I guess the first question or second question we like to ask, because this is a motorsports podcast, is. What are your first motorsports memories? Do you, do you remember anything? I guess you don't remember anything. Okay, so you're in California. What's the first time you really encountered motorsport? Um, I think the most prominent memory, I must have been about, I think, 12 or 13. And, like, my mother knew I was really into cars, but she didn't really know much about motorsports. Um, and neither did my father, really. So they asked one of our... Um, friends at school, uh, their father, to take us out to a race event. And so um, me and his son, we went on a camping trip to the California like desert area. And in, in the States, um, like oval racing is really big. And then dirt oval racing is really big. So like they'll do clay pack uh, around like a, a dirt oval. And then you get these um, methanol powered, like 800 horsepower, like tube frame cars that just go and just drive and slide around the dirt and as like a 12 year old it's like the coolest thing in the world. so that that's like my very first memory of uh, more sports i guess fantastic we know a little bit about dirt ovals on this show because we've had taylor ferns who was basically the most successful um female racing driver in dirt oval history and she's in oh, the school dirt. yeah exactly she's in the usac silver crown series so some it's oh, okay. a series that's had sort of the andrettis in it it's had sort of it's, it's, as you say, it's like a staple of American motorsport, but it's something perhaps in the, in the UK or Europe we don't have so much. It's fantastic. So what, what was your second motorsport memory? How did you evolve from sort of seeing that on that trip? Where did you go next? Um, second motorsport. Uh, it's probably a while later. Um, when I was in high school, this was around the time when uh, drifting was becoming really big. Um, and the area I grew up in Southern California was like, it's historically very famous for drag racing and the import drag racing. So like a lot of the Fast and the Furious franchise was filmed in the area that I grew up in. And a lot of those people that were involved in those kind of racing series, they got into drifting uh, from the first days. So when I was in high school, there was this Japanese tuner shop, like very close to where I lived and we would pass by it all the time. And I just remember, um, one day me and my friend just worked up the courage to go there and they had their drift cars out there. And the, I think head mechanic, he actually went and showed us all the cars and explained how they all worked. Um, so from that point on, I started just watching uh, that sort of stuff a lot. And so that's probably my second big more sport experience. I mean, drifting is something, yeah, I remember it. It sort of got like a cult following in the UK, I want to say in the early noughties, and definitely a yeah. Japanese inspiration. There was even a film or a kind of anime about it, and I can't for the life of me remember exactly what it was oh, about. Oh, Initial D. Sorry? Uh, it's called Initial D. Ah, that was it, Initial D. I remember watching like the first series of it, or the first bit where the guy's dad like sells eggs, and <laughs> he's driving through the yeah. mountains, drifting the car. Like, I don't know why I know that memory. Yeah, did you get into <laughs> Initial D then? Oh, yeah, I was like... Uh... Me and my friends, like, we were just, like, so crazy about it at the time. Um, but that, um, yeah, I think that really got me interested in just uh, cars in general and, like, building them. And then at the same time, my, um, my, uh, one of our family friends owned, like, a German car garage. 
so during the summers, I would go and help him out here and there. So I learned a bit about like being abused in Porsches. And like, I think the combination of those two really got me interested in cars and racing. Amazing. And of course, you're basically like currently an aerothermal engineer um, and you've kind of graduated uh, with a master's in mechanical engineering um, and, and kind of you have an incredibly um, impressive CV. So, so like you, you got that interest, you were helping out at that German sort of car garage, you went to study. What's, what I find interesting is um, when you turn, I don't know, a passion into something that you've got to study or work at, for some people it changes, but, but evidently for you, you've then pushed through and, and, and turned it into your career. Did it change at all when you then went to university and started studying it, or, or, or is it the same passion since day one? Um, I, I think it's the same passion because, like, I, I think for me in more sports, my interest is first from the engineering side and then second from the sport and driver side. So I think um, in many ways, more sports was just an extension of a curiosity of engineering. I mean, in high school, I did robotics and things like that. So when, when it came time for university, I think I was just in general very excited to learn um, kind of the science behind um, like car building and um, designing structures. So it, it was quite just a really interesting experience for me in general. No, it makes a lot of sense. And we just had a guy, Ryan, on the show, the previous episode, who is trying to kind of connect robotics um, and, and bring it into the classroom in school as a kind of early years um, I don't know, introduction to what you can then do in motorsport later uh, for kids. So, yeah, it, it, it sounds like you were kind of an engineering nut from, from the beginning. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> tell our listeners then what an aerothermal engineer is. What does that mean? Uh, sure. So um, most people, when they think of aerodynamics, they just think of the external body work of the car, the wings, the diffusers. But another really important part in an F1 car is the cooling because uh, your power unit in general, like it has to operate within a certain temperature range. Uh, so there has to be someone that designs all the, um, the ducting and the flows that go inside the car. Um, and the challenge with that is that you can't deliver too much cooling to the car, but you also can't deliver too little. And part of the aerothermal job is figuring out how much airflow do we need to direct inside the car um, to adequately cool it, then designing the cooling system. So also looking at the water system and the gearbox um, oiling system and figuring out how big do we need to make the exchangers um, and what the requirements are. And then the other hard part is you also can't make the car too heavy. So you're balancing between um, your airflow and your uh, water flow needs, um, your weight needs, um, and then the overall power, power and reliability requirement. And then the, the additional thing is that, like, for the airflow that you use to cool the car, it, it negatively impacts the, the aerodynamic performance of the car. And so you have to find that uh, balance because your traditional aerodynamicists don't want to have a lot of your cooling flow interrupt their perfectly designed um, uh, external uh, bodywork. So it, it's just a kind of like a multifaceted part where you're partially an aerodynamicist and partially a mechanical engineer. Like trying to break it down for a mere mortal such as myself. Okay. Does, does, <laughs> no, no. Does, I mean, that made a lot of sense, but does having more cooling, does it create additional drag or does it just distort the airflow over the car in a way that you wouldn't want? What's, what's the main problem you're trying to avoid or minimize? Um, uh, mostly the distortion. Cause like, um, the, the cooling, uh, air after it exits, um, uh, a radiator uh, it has a lot of low energy and that low energy airflow really kind of uh, negatively impacts um, the, the car like where sometimes you want high energy airflow to go to um, so that's part of it and then yes the drag is also um, an issue depending and it really depends on the circuits like certain circuits are very drag sensitive so that the drag input of the uh, cooling system can be an issue, but I think a lot of times it's more the the distortion of the the flow field, as you were saying. Makes sense. And like, I, I guess my memories of cooling, because I'm sort of an unashamed fan of Lewis Hamilton, my memories of cooling are probably when Mercedes went to maybe Austria 
And I don't know if it's because it was hot or it's a little bit up in the mountains. It caused them problems and they, they perhaps didn't have enough uh, cooling on the car. Presumably, there's a variation across the season. Some tracks, it's, you know, you don't need as much. Others, you do. And you've got to develop a car that kind of hits the right range. Um, without revealing any trade secrets about Williams, I, I mean, are there any commonly known tracks where it's harder to cool the car or where actually you'd have too much cooling? Uh, yeah, so I think historically, uh, Mexico is like one of the hardest circuits uh, just because of the high altitude. Um, so th that's typically a circuit that I think a lot of teams um, kind of struggle with. And actually, um, there's kind of a famous older F1 engineer named Willem Toet, and he has a really beautiful article about, I think, the early days of, I think, either when he was working at Benetton or Ferrari, where um, he realized that this altitude difference would have a huge effect on the cooling performance. And um, he took that into account when he was designing the, the cooling and uh, the, the aerodynamic system. And that actually gave them an advantage. Uh, and I think actually allowed them to win the race, if I recall correctly. So, but historically, Mexico is like one of the, the big ones. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And Mexico kind of had a hiatus on the, on the sort of Formula One calendar. It was there back in the sort of 80s, early 90s. And then came back in the mid mid teens so um what happens then if you if you can't cool the car sufficiently what's the biggest problem is that the engine temperature is that then meaning you're gonna have to run i don't know not not <laughs> not accelerate the car as hard i mean what 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 countermeasures do you have to take if you can't cool the car effectively yeah so i think the first thing that they'll try to do and this i guess depends on the power sensitivity of the track like if the track's really power sensitive and you need more power, um, they'll try and just open up the bodywork as much as possible. Even if like you get to the point where your, your cooling exits aren't big enough, then they might even go as drastic as like cutting uh, additional uh, holes like, up to the legality, um, which is something you don't really want to do because that um, like, uh, ruins the aerodynamic performance. Uh, but then, uh, if it's less power sensitive, then yeah, you could uh, ask the driver to change their driving styles in such a way that the demand on the power unit is less. Wow, that's fascinating. Or, I, can, yeah, I, can, I, can, I can assure you this is not a, a kind of exam or, or like a, <laughs> a question. Like I, I'm fascinated by this. Okay, and, and we've definitely seen, um, I'm sure we've seen uh, teams get a knife out or a blade or something and just trim uh, certain things, remove tape, etc. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, okay, well, I mean, are you wh where do you find yourself working? Obviously, you're based in Oxford. You've got a fantastic job at Williams. So, are you based in the factory? Do you get along to the race weekends at some points, or wh where do you find yourself based? Um, so, I'm mostly uh, well at the moment. I'm 100% factory based. Um, sometimes I do a little bit so of support in the kind of um, with the aero performance engineers, but um, I don't really see any trackside um, role. Okay, and a really interesting question for you. And, you know, I don't want you to have to kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, what, remember what James Val's official lines are on this. But I know that in Formula One at the moment, there's a bit of a debate to do with um, the cost cap and yeah. capital expenditure because teams like Williams want to and, and you, you know to come up to the same standard as other teams in terms of um, their facilities. So Williams, I'm presuming, must have a pretty good wind tunnel from back in the days. I remember Williams in the 90s and so on. Do you find yourself working in the wind tunnel? And, and are, are there any sort of other tools that you know Formula One teams have that help you calculate the cooling? You're using computers to do that. What, what's the main things you're working on? Uh, yeah, so um, wind tunnel is a big part of it, um, especially when we're working with the external aerodynamicists. Um, then a lot of teams will have cooling-specific wind tunnels uh, just for the radiators, or we'll use like um, an external uh, testing company that that is is kind of well versed to do that sort of stuff. Um, and then a lot of teams will use something called like a VTT. Uh, or virtual test track, you'll see it a lot during um, uh, before preseason testing. Like I think last year, I think Alpine had released a video of their car on a VTT track. And what it is, it's like this, it's just this um, uh, facility where you can hook up your car to, um, and it gives like 
the same resistances um, as you would see on track, and you can actually replay old lap data and put the car through its paces uh, before it even goes on track. So a lot of the top F1 teams before they've even uh, touched the ground for first preseason testing, those cars have already run uh, thousands of kilometers of testing on these virtual tracks facilities. Wow. And, and when you say virtual tracks, are they, I mean, because I'm literally a novice when it comes to the engineering side, are they, um, you've got a real car there and are you, um, or, or is it kind of on, all computer simulated? Like I can imagine, you know, when they test right. the horsepower of cars and they get them on a platform and then they're sort of running the engine. Is it like that or is it sort of virtual completely? I know it, it's, it's a real car. So yeah, um, yeah. it'll be like um, the car basically almost ready to go for uh, pre-season testing without all the external body work. So it'll be like your chassis, your engine, your gearbox all hooked up. Um, and then you have like huge fans that deliver the airflow for whatever speed that you want uh, that are connected to your in intakes. And your, your wheels are connected to uh, dyno rollers that, that you can tune the resistance on. Um, and then you have a computer control that um, basically can give the throttle profile of what a driver um would give um, for like a different uh, track, I guess, or um, design uh, criteria that you want. Fascinating. So it's like uh, you're, you're saying you get the telemetry from, I don't know, driver doing, I don't know, Interlagos or wherever. And uh, a computer is almost replicating the delivery of the throttle and, and so on and so forth. Uh, correct. And like, uh, because like you're actually now moving the physical engine for those um, kind of throttle demands, you can actually like see how your cooling system or your gearbox system is responding to um, like a kind of like a real life scenario. Um, so it gives you an idea of how well your, your design is um, and allows you to kind of react to issues before you even hit um, uh, winter testing. Wow. So you're like ahead of the curve. Um, and, and so like my question, so that was a fascinating insight into the technical side. I'm also interested into like the managerial side. So in organizations, obviously for high performance teams, you often have roles that, um, as you've described, you've got your sort of external aerodynamicists and you've got your aerothermal engineers and they've got different jobs that have shared interests, but also competing interests and, and the tension, which is not a bad word, you know, you have to get their kind of interest and tension in a way that delivers the, the best possible performance. So, like, how do you manage that relationship between, between your team and the kind of external aerodynamicists? Because clearly you, you want the same thing. You want the car to go quick, but you have different priorities. So, like, how, how does that relationship work? Uh, yeah, I think uh, I'm sure it varies from team to team. But, like, at Williams, most people... In general, the culture is kind of like a family culture. Like everyone's like quite supportive and helpful of each other. So, especially like with the external aero guys that we work with, we have a very close relationship with them. And so, usually, like their demands are probably the most important. Like as far as like getting the performance. So, if they find something that that has a lot of performance, like as an aerothermal engineer, like we will work very hard to kind of. Um, meet their needs i guess but at the same time if we find um like we have a way of looking at the performance metric and if that performance metric the the effort that's uh, needed to kind of make that happen is not that great like we'll, we'll kind of push back a little bit and say like hey i just don't think it's worth it um and there's a little bit of back and forth but in general i, I don't know it's like it, it is quite a team sport so like i think most people uh, they're in the mind space of like whatever makes the car faster is what we're going to do and most people like they don't have much of an ego about it like the, a lot of people know what the end goal is just to make a faster car so everyone's on the same page and willing to work where they can I, I can see that and i suppose you're right the performance metric like ultimately you can't hide from the stopwatch as uh toto yeah. Wolf, i think says and others um, as well as other metrics. I mean, what, what metric, is there like a kind of physics <laughs> or, or kind of a, a ther thermodynamic metric that you use to measure the performance of heat loss or, or, or reduction in heat? How, what's the metric do you, do you use? Um, yeah, so like, like there's a couple of different ones. I, ca I can't talk about all of them, but like, um, 
uh, at the end goal, like you said, it, it's the the lap time benefit. Um, so so that's like the higher level uh, target, I guess. And then um, the other big one is something called AMF, so the air mass flow. So like how much airflow do we actually need through the car? So like that's another big target. And then like downforce or drag uh, coefficients. Um, th- those are some like the basic ones. Um, and then there are, um, as you said, like more involved um like heat transfer related stuff i mean uh I, i'm definitely not a journalist so i'm not going to badger you for <laughs> you know secret secret answers uh we'll do it through love that you'll feel so comfortable uh that you let things slip um so you so you joined uh williams in uh, sort of january 2022 um what was it like like did you was it a kind of competitive application process or like how did you find yourself at williams um that's an interesting question like uh so Williams was, I had applied to a bunch of teams um, and, and actually this was my second interview with Williams. And so what had happened was I, I had applied for an aeroscience job um, and on, on LinkedIn and like my LinkedIn profile has a lot of uh, thermal, my thermal experience on it. And when the recruiter saw that uh, they came back to me and they told me like, look, you know, you've applied to this aeroscience job, but we actually feel that you're more qualified for this thermal engineering job, uh, which at the time they hadn't even listed. I think they were getting ready to list it. And then, um, so they asked me if I wanted an interview and then I took the interview and then I got the job, I guess. Um, so it, it was kind of like being at the right place at the right time. Um, but yeah. there were many years leading up to that, that kind of built to that point, I guess. No, I can see that on your CV. I mean, um, the the thing that makes me smile now is that one of our previous guests, Sam Leakes, who also I think used to work um, as a composites technician at Williams a few years back, um, she was talking about the power of LinkedIn, that people sort of, uh, recruiters obviously look, look at that as a, a key way to sort of spot people that would be extremely suited to the Formula One world. I think she's worked at uh, Alfa Romeo and, and of course, uh, Red Bull. So, so you um, prior to that, you were in California. Um, so you you mentioned that you might not have actually been looking for a Formula One job. Uh, so, what were you doing in California before you kind of came to to sunny Oxfordshire? <laughs> um, yeah, so I so uh, gr- graduating from uh, my bachelor's, um, I moved back to California, and I was working um, at a company called Advanced Clutch Technology, and we were designing. Um, kind of like clutches for like drift cars and drag racing cars and a little bit of road racing cars here and there. Um, and while I was doing that, I got involved with this uh, time trial slash time attack team. And at that time, time attack, um, which, which is just basically like you can you can think of it as just like a, a one lap qualifying um, event. But like the, the entire event, I guess, is based on just uh, doing your fastest lap time. And there are very little regulations on the aerodynamic design of the car. So the team I joined, um, the driver was quite good, but they they didn't really have an engineering arm of that team. And so I came in and basically started um, getting more and more involved with setting up the data systems of the car and then um, looking into the aerodynamics of the car. And then I started getting more and more interested in the aerodynamic design of the car and coming from a mechanical engineering background, like you only take a certain amount of uh, fluid dynamics classes. So you don't necessarily have the entire background that a traditional aerodynamicist does if they do like an aerospace engineering degree. So at the time I started realizing that I was kind of hitting the limit of what I knew and what I could read in books. So I went in and while I was working, I did kind of like a part-time masters over many years and, from that, um, that master's had like kind of kind of like a thermal fluids uh, degree, but it allowed you to use the university wind tunnel and kind of get experience in aerodynamic testing like that. So between the grad school and then my full-time job and then working at Yeager Racing, uh, it was, I was kind of developing like my aerodynamics background. Um, and then after finishing my master's degree, I decided to um, kind of look into doing uh more more professional like um aerodynamicist role rather than just uh kind of like an amateur team and the rest as they say is history 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that time attack thing, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of imagining like Gran Turismo, like sometimes it's like a, on a hill climb or something. But like um, you, you mentioned that the, the kind of rules and regulations are not as, well, they're not going to be as stringent as Formula One where the specification is extremely tight. Um, so did you find yourself in your time at Jaeger Racing, like coming up with pot uh, potentially innovative approaches or did the cars all look quite similar by the end? Like what, what were your fondest memories as the sort of aerodynamics guy there at the Jaeger Racing? Um, uh, I guess there are two fond memories. Um, one was um, there's this one track in Southern California that's quite famous called Willow Springs. It's a, um, nowadays it's, it's kind of an outdated track, but in the 1950s and 60s, um, it was probably one of the most important tracks for uh, sports car racing. And in this track, there's like a, a sequence of turns, I think it's turn um, 9, 10, where um, in theory, you can take it flat out um, if you're very committed and you have a car that has enough aerodynamic uh, downforce. But at the time when we were driving there, like in our series, not, not many people could take that turn uh, flat out. They would kind of always have to lift. And I remember in 2016, we were having just this really great year. And we had just, um, I had just developed my first um, under tray package for this car. And we were looking at the data and we had gone to this track, I think three or four times. And after analyzing the data, we were, we were seeing that we were dropping lap times more and more and more there. But we realized that Mark at the time was still lifting um, in this sequence of turns nine, nine and 10. And I was talking with Mark and I remember the night when Mark looks at me and he's like, you know, I think I can take this flat out. Like, and like to give an idea of this track, like if you, if you make a mistake, um, this track is located in the desert. So you, you would fly off the track and go straight into like desert sand um, and crash the car. So you had to be quite committed um, on this track to do that. And I remember being at that event and we see him going out on this flyer lap and like my heart's like really pounding and, he, and I see him going like past turn eight now into nine and then he just nails it, hits the throttle full committed and he's going into this turn, I think like 150 or 140 miles an hour um, and does not lift. And he just makes it through the turn and I couldn't believe it. It was just the car just had so much grip and he comes in and finishes that flyer lap and breaks the record for, for all-wheel drive. And we were just uh, – that was just like one of the greatest memories, I think. Just felt so good. And, um, yeah, that, that was one. And then there was another one where um, we, we were racing an event uh, called Speed Ring where um, it's located on um, the Auto Club Fontana track. So it's – uh, part NASCAR oval and part infill uh, road course. And on, on these oval uh, courses, because of the banking, you can really get some like strong speeds. And because of that, your aerodynamics package works even more. And I remember Mark was doing his flyer on this roval course and he came into the pits and he told me, he's like, Rami, I wish you could drive this car because I can literally feel the car being sucked down to the ground. This is like the most amazing thing. And I just, that felt so good to me as an engineer, like just, because, you know, like as an engineer, like I don't drive the car, so I I don't get any like validation of how good it is until like, you know, you see the driver just like so happy and so elated and it oh, I just it just feels so great. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, while you're talking, I'm looking at the tracks. I mean, I was looking at the Willow Springs. I love some of the names of the corners here. You've got wait, Rabbit's Ear. Uh, what else you got? Budweiser balcony. Hopefully, I'm on the right track. But uh, it looks uh, yeah, it's probably Big Willow. Yeah, Big Willow. Right, exactly. Yeah, because there's a load of different configurations. Yeah, and you're right. Like, if if you're listening to the podcast at the moment, just Google Willow Springs Raceway. There's a picture of it from the air. It's basically in the middle of the desert with a bit of a mountain behind it. <laughs> you you definitely don't want to crash uh, there. I mean, fantastic. Kudos. Great. Um, great work. And talking of deserts, so you kind of found yourself um, successful with your interview and moved to Williams. Like something I'm also fascinated about as having lived abroad, moving from the U S to the UK. And obviously you, you lived, you were born in the UK, but probably don't have like many memories of it. Um, have you found the cultural differences or the kind of difference in, in sort of how you live between here and there? What, what, what are the main things that come to mind? Um, 
I guess the first one that stuck out is like uh, naturally everything in the UK is a bit smaller, so your rooms are smaller, your restrooms are smaller, and uh, that that took a little bit of getting used to coming from California, where the houses are much larger. Um, and I think cultural wise, especially like even working practice wise, I think um, British uh, engineering culture is a little bit more understated. So um, sometimes it's hard to understand if you're doing a good job or a bad job or if, or if you've really made a mistake. Whereas in the US, I feel like we tend to be a little bit more overstated or extroverted. So um, it comes off across easier. So I think that was a little bit of a hard, harder tra transition. Yeah. Um, and, on, and on that point, I definitely find when I'm working with colleagues, um, some people do need a bit more sort of expressive feedback because if you don't tell them they've done a great job, they might assume like <laughs> you hate them or something. Uh, and equally like, uh, you know, British people don't really express like with pure anger um, when they're upset. I, there's a, a Twitter page called Very British Problems, which had something today. I don't know, if you, have you seen that? Very British I guess, Problems? Uh, I, I, yeah, I've seen part of uh, some of their posts. Yeah, so today, like it said, things that British people say when they're absolutely furious. And and basically it just says like, what do you think you're doing? And, and if you, <laughs> or can I help? Uh, or now look, you know, things that like, actually as a Brit, when I'm saying these, I'm like, <gasps> like panicking but like they're not exactly direct in explaining um our sort of dismay so like as an engineer when you're i don't know pitching an idea or when someone's giving you feedback on something you've done presumably um you're having to kind of turn on your radar even higher to sense whether they're happy or not i don't know is that right uh, yeah that's correct I, I definitely got the can i help uh, a bit so like 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 where i was starting out so definitely it, that took a while to like understand what was going on <laughs> weird we speak the same language we watch the same netflix and yet uh for whatever reason there's so many hidden differences um not least the weather sadly for you now now living in the uk although this year this this summer's better than last i think i'm trying to remember oh yeah uh, definitely i think so so talking of sort of the seasons and going from last year um, when you so you had your drivers with Nicholas Latifi and Albon had come back. Uh, is that right? I'm trying to remember when Albon came back. Was it last year? He's doing such a good job. And then this year, um, you've, you've sort of switched to Logan Sargent. And of course, the big change is that James Vowles is your team principal. When these personalities at the top of the team sort of change, be it the driver, the team principal, do you notice a shift in, in the kind of atmosphere in the team or the culture? You talked about the culture earlier. Yeah, I think so. Like in the sense that, like, um, I think one of the hardest things about F one is that everyone in every team works very, very hard. Like even the tenth place team, the engineers are putting in very long hours to make a car work well. And you know, when you're winning championships, like that hard work that you put in is instantly rewarded. So you feel good about what you're doing, but when you're at the bottom of the championship, like you just think like, you know, I've put in so many hours into this car. I've broken sleep to make this work. And my car is finishing last place. It, it can be quite an emotionally detrimental thing for, um, it, you know, the, the factory staff. So I think this is where the drivers and like the team principals have a huge role in kind of motivating the factory or bringing up that kind of, um, um, atmosphere like uh, I think sometimes you'll hear uh, James Vallis talk about it like where the you know the hell the heads are lifted up high this season and it's, it's a true thing like the more you know the better your cars do or like when we see Albon like finishing at such high places or qualifying at such high places it, it really it feels so good because you know how much hard work you put into it and like finally we can see some benefit from this result so uh, I think the team principal and even to like a seasoned driver to a certain extent really does play um, a big effect in just like boosting the overall morale of the team. Like I, I think in general, if you're an F1 engineer, you're already a highly motivated person, but um, it can get to you sometimes if you, you know, see your car um, consistently finishing last or like, like just like anyone, if you go on social media and you see that your team is like just the butt of all jokes or of a, of a meme, like it, it does feel like it it hurts, right? Because you you put in so much of your your blood, your sweat uh, into this, and like 
just to think like, wow, you know, it's not even worth it at, at some time. So I think that's where I think like someone like James Vowles, I, I personally find like very inspirational and um, it really does like pick up your, your motivation again after setbacks. You definitely get that sense with James Vowles um, that he's a kind of very thoughtful leader. Like um, I've seen him appear more on sort of the world feed or on sort of Sky Sports F1 during the broadcast. Um, the things that he says about the the performance of the team publicly, um, he does his YouTube videos or, or kind of debriefs uh, and Q&As. I mean, obviously, this is only me seeing what he's projecting outside of the organization, but definitely feels like he's being sort of transparent and, and motivating. And, you know, obviously, it's, a, it's still quite a few races to go, but Williams uh, in P7 in the championship at the moment, uh, which would be... I think your best result for quite a while, uh, certainly towards the beginning of the turbo hybrid era. So, so fingers crossed that continues. Um, I, I guess a question on that front, do you have colleagues that have been in Williams for like ages and ages? Cause back when I was a kid, Williams was sort of like Alan Prost, Nigel Mansell, Ed Senna, um, Damon Hill and Jacques Villeneuve, like champion, champion, champion. Like do you have people that were are there, there from that era or is engineering quite a young game? Um, definitely. So I think the average age of someone at Williams is probably in the thirties or forties. Um, but we, last year, when I, when I first joined, there was one guy who had recently retired when I was there and he had been at Williams since 1980. Um, and so he had been around for a majority of all the world championships that we had, um, had except for, I think one or two, um, so there are a couple like old timers uh, still at Williams. I think a lot of them have started to retire now, but definitely there are still one or two still left. You'd almost want to have like, I don't know, a fortnightly half an hour story time kind of meeting where that guy just, uh, I don't know, recounts the those days. It's something about the identity of the organization like Williams Williams is, uh, you know, a big name in, in Formula One. And I don't know, like, would you, your parents, did, did they kind of get the scale or the kind of reputation of Williams? And how did they react when you got, when you got the job? Um, so I think my, my mother didn't really um, fully understand. But, like, uh, so, so my, my father passed away a while back. But when he was still around, I remember he found out that I was watching Formula One and he told me, he's like, you know, when I was in England in the mid eighties before you were born, like we used to go to Silverstone and uh, like camp out on the side and uh, we would watch the cars and he would name like the Williams drivers. So he talked about like Nigel Mansell and um, uh, Prost. I mean, this is, I, I guess, closer to the nineties, but uh, yeah, he, he, he definitely knew of Williams. And um, so I'm sure if he had been around when I, when I had joined Williams, he would have been quite excited. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear about your dad's passing. And um, like, I'm sure he would be extremely proud. I mean, working for Williams is sort of like, I don't know, working for the BBC or working, you know, like a <laughs> huge household name, uh, certainly in, in this sport with a fantastic and, and glorious history. And hopefully you guys are bringing the sport back. Um, before, before I switch to, to a sort of car restoration project, your you're you're going to um before i do that like you talked about like the challenges of seeing you know or the ease of seeing your results on the track if you're a front-running team if you're an engineering that team you're like yes look i i helped produce that rear wing and now look we're winning the championship williams is sort of it feels like it's on the way back because maybe it was five years ago or so they had quite a tricky winter um and they didn't make the first round of testing uh, do you get the sense within the organization that it feels like it's on the on the rebound? Do you think there's still kind of a bit of muscle memory or, or some, still some hurt from that that experience a few years ago and the de determination to bring Williams back? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely feel that we're on the rebound. Like, I've, I, I've thankfully been able to uh, be part of a couple teams that have kind of gone through this rebirth process and... Uh, I feel like um, the culture is always the same where like you at the, at the beginning, you, you feel uh, you, you can sense like there's a little bit of cynicism and negativity 
um, just because of years of like downward spirals and hurt. But then you do see slight changes of like, oh, wow, yeah, we're actually doing better. And then um, you start seeing people like come up with new ideas or like more open to trying new things that maybe they weren't before. And like I've maybe I've been fortunate to be at Williams at kind of a better time when we're starting to make this transition, but I definitely see it. Um, at least if I compare it to my past experiences, I definitely see um, a certain change of outlook and it's still early days, but I do think that there is a change happening within Williams. And um, a lot of people who work at Williams, like the, the heritage and the history is a big part of why they work there. So I think, there is an excitement of the idea of like, wow, we could try and bring Williams back to the glory days. I think there is that excitement that is starting to build again. Fantastic. And yeah, that, that, that does sound like a really motivating vision to be driving towards. And talking of kind of bringing things back to their glory days, I hear you're restoring a BMW. Is that right? Uh, yes, uh, that's correct. <laughs> fantastic. You see, how did I know that? No, it's my co-host, Dennis, <laughs> who does fantastic research, but um, yeah. So like, uh what what sort of a bmw is it and what made you pick that car uh yeah so it's a, a 1975 bmw 2002 and the reason why i had this car is um again my family friend uh his father had this uh bmw gar garage in los angeles and as a kid he i'm uh, sorry at, when i was a kid he he owned a uh, bmw 2002 as well and so he used to take me for rides in it and as a child, that's like one of my first memories of a cool car. And when I was a teenager, I had saved up all this money from working and I was looking to buy my first car. And it so happened that he had had a customer who had brought in this 2002 for repair work and then they just vanished. Um, so he ended up uh, getting the car on a lien sale and he, he was trying to get rid of it. And I basically asked him, I was like, Hey, you know, you have this car, I'm looking for a car. Would you sell it to me? And so from that, um, that's how I ended up with that car. And uh, so what does the car need doing? Like, does it drive now or does it need a kind of, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it has been driven since 2006. So, uh, okay, so fair what, <laughs> what I've done is, um, I've taken out all the original 70s uh, engine and transmission, and I'm putting in um, a newer Honda engine and a newer transmission from a, an 80s BMW uh, into the car. So like the, the Honda engine, which might sound kind of strange of a choice, but it, it weighs about the same as the original 70s engine and makes double the power stock. So that's kind of one of my main motivations to using it. And that's interesting. You mentioned the weight. So does the car need a certain amount of weight for balance or was it just it was the maximum weight the chassis could hold? And so that was your limit? Uh, no, I, definitely for balance. Like I, I, I do believe in the kind of the Colin Chapman idea of like a lighter car wins everywhere. Um, so like, like some, certain people have said, oh, why don't you put a V8 into it, especially being in America? And like I've definitely done stuff like that in previous projects on other cars, but I felt for this car, it should have a four cylinder engine and it should be lightweight. Um, just because the car was such a small car, it would, it, it would be kind of awkward for it to have a lot of power, but just be a very heavy car. It doesn't really make much sense. Okay, that makes sense. I'm just looking at pictures of it here and I would encourage uh, listeners to do the same. So like, um, does it have, is it a rear engine? Like, where's the engine on it? Or is it the front? I don't know. Where is the engine uh, yeah. on the engine? Uh, it's a front engine, rear wheel drive. Um, ah, there we go. Basically. Okay. Fantastic. Um, so what's the, like, I don't want to pin you down here because you're like a busy guy. You did your master's whilst doing the kind of uh, time attacks, whilst doing your day job. And now you're in a Formula One team working extremely hard. But like, do you have a time horizon by which you hope to have restored the car? Or is that just too difficult to say? Um... I guess my hope is like uh, within the next like five or six years, but realistically, like, I don't know. Cause like, like this car is definitely like when I have time um, and at the moment it stays in the United States. So, you know, I rarely get to see it as well. So um, it's definitely not like a short term uh, project. It sounds like a member of the family, you know, sort of living <laughs> in the U S at the moment. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think like like my my mom and my sisters just just are like this are just so amazed. I still have it, just like just all the grief that's given me. So. Well, you know, when when we hear that you've taken a job in IndyCar or I don't know uh, some other US based sport, um, we all know why you wanted to move back uh, <laughs> <laughs> to the car. So no, that's fantastic. Uh, okay, well, look. Um, at this point, we normally uh, play a game called um, Taxi Dinner Avoid. And I'd, I'm, I'm kind of like struggling, debating whether to play it with you because I don't want you to kind of uh, say something about a driver that suddenly then becomes uh, a Williams driver next season. Who knows? But basically the game is you, there's 20 drivers on the grid. Uh, you have to pick a driver that's really fast, uh, that's going to take you to the dinner, smooth but fast. You've got a driver that's fascinating, so you want to have uh, dinner with them, and then you've got a driver uh, that uh, you know you might want to avoid. Let's put it that way. So I don't know. Maybe we don't have to go on the Formula One grid, uh, but does that sound like a game you want to play? We we could play another. Oh one. sure, yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> okay, so I mean, I'll open it up. It doesn't have to just be this grid. Everyone finds the first two answers much easier than the third. So who's going to be your taxi driver taking you to dinner? Uh, taxi driver. Uh... It's hard because this is probably the same person that I would want to have dinner with, but I'll say taxi driver, I'll say Lewis Hamilton. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, and that's just sort of the speed. He doesn't have many DNFs, so I guess you'd get to dinner on time and, you know, no problem. Yeah, and yeah. just consistency, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There are some other drivers who we won't mention who perhaps you, you'd have a 50-50 chance of uh, getting to dinner. Um, okay, so who would you have dinner with? Obviously, you've mentioned Lewis, so I'm going to say, unfortunately, even though he is an interesting guy, you can't, you can't select the same guy. So who are you going to have dinner with? Uh, dinner. Uh, hmm. You know, the, I don't know why, but the first name that's coming to my head is Valtteri Bottas. Nice. Uh, I think he, he, see, he seems like he doesn't talk a lot, but I, I think he just seems like an interesting person. And, and I feel like he's having a lot more fun these days. You know, he's sort of growing his mustache out. You know, he's having his his cereal. He's got, you know, his, uh, he loves a bit of espresso uh, coffee, as as I do as well. Um, okay, yeah, I'm sure he'd be an interesting guy. Um, okay, so here's and, and also I suppose he's a Williams alumni and was there when yes, you know, the third in the championship. So there must. I hope there's a picture of Bottas somewhere at Grove uh, Factory. Who knows? Maybe there is. Oh yeah, there definitely is. <laughs> Uh, good. Uh, okay, so and he was a bit younger uh, in those days. So, okay, this is the tricky one. Uh, which driver would you avoid? Uh, so, this might be a kind of controversial one, but um, yeah, probably Max Verstappen. Okay, okay. I mean, I I don't want I don't you don't need to elaborate on that, but I know that a certain proportion of our listener base will completely understand uh, where you're coming from. Uh, but there we are. Maybe, you know, maybe next season, Max Verstappen's going to come to Williams and uh, and that's going to be <laughs> awkward. That's going to be extremely awkward. Um, <laughs> like, I think he's a good driver. It's just like, I don't think he'd be someone I'd, I'd want to hang out with. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I get that impression. Uh, I mean, maybe he'd want to hang out with you, but I don't think he'd want to hang out with me. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Well. So <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. I mean, he likes he likes his sim racing. Do you uh, do you find yourself doing any of that, or are you far too busy, far too cool to uh, do that? I, I haven't done much of it. Like uh, at Williams, we have like the esports sims that I've tried once or twice. Um, but and I have a couple friends who are really into it. But I, as of yet, I haven't really uh, put a big effort into it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where you have to get into it. Like. Uh, Dens, who's the other co-host on the show, he's got like every every time I look, he's got a new element in his rig. He's got like this screen that is sort of curved. I mean, I'm saying all the wrong nouns, like all the wrong words, but you know, it's extremely impressive. The chair, the wheels, the the force feedback on the on the pedals, like uh, it takes a lot of time as well. I feel like my wife would just sort of divorce me or something. I don't know. <laughs> like my kids would wonder where I am, you know. <laughs> um, but there we are. Okay. I mean, actually, yeah. A quick question before we kind of ask. Uh, your advice for kind of the next generation of engineers, but like, what do you, uh, do you have much spare time, uh, you know, working for a Formula One team and what do you find yourself doing? Um, it, it varies depending on where in the season we are, if we're in that kind of the more design phase of the season, or if we're more on the kind of like uh, track side 
analysis phase of it. But um, I I have an okay amount of time. I'd say like like probably not as much as um, a normal job, but I definitely have enough time to um, kind of like on weekends, especially like sometimes there'll be enough time to like like I I like outside of motorsport stuff. I like um, like hiking and camping. So like. I haven't done any camping in the UK yet, but um, I've definitely gone on like long walks um, and hiking here and there. Um, and then also on the side, I, I kind of I'm very big into like the the maker movement. So just um, woodworking or just metalwork and just um, just making things for the joy of it. So um, I've, I've tried to kind of work on stuff like that. Well, I learned something new every day. I'm just like looking up the maker movement or maker culture. So basically, like you're extremely good with your your hands, and like uh, if if you know if you have kids in the future, I, I presume you don't have them now. If they want you to make like one of those soapbox derby races, you could just do that in in the blink of an eye, presumably. Uh, I, I don't know about blink of an eye, but like I definitely, <laughs> uh, I, I I could at least attempt it. So. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, I I feel like we need to end this conversation at this point. Otherwise, I'm going to start commissioning you to build. <laughs> <laughs> one for an eight-year-old and one for a five-year-old. So uh, I know you don't have the time. Uh, and yeah, and hiking, like you're not far from the Cotswolds there. It's like, uh, provided you get some good weather, it's like a lovely part of, uh, of England. So definitely, definitely worth a look. Definitely. Okay. So um, we're at that point. We definitely, we love to talk to people from all over motorsport. Um, we've had actually quite a few engineers on, but we've had people from the media Drivers, you know, we've had Mario Andretti, uh, we had Brian Herter earlier this year as well. Like, and we always ask them, sort of, you you followed a particular path. This is something you're really passionate about, and you've ended up, you know, at the pinnacle of motorsport, right? You're in Formula One. So, what advice would you give to younger people that perhaps have that similar passion uh, about engineering or motorsport? Like, how do, like, what what advice would you give them in today's world to get into where you've got to or where they want to get to? Um, I think one of the big things is that there's no one path into getting into more sport. Like, like my journey is quite different from someone else's, but the main thing is that to always kind of, as long as you have that passion to keep on going, like you're going to hear a lot of no's, you're going to get a lot of rejections. And at times you're going to feel like you doubt your own abilities, but if you have a kind of the love of more sport and, and you still really had that fire burning, like don't give up, just keep on going. And eventually it will happen for you. Like I, I'm, I'm really a big believer that like you kind of make your own luck in the sense that yes, there is the element of luck, but the more you try, you will get luckier. Absolutely. And like a question for you on this, cause you know, talking about rejection and, and also self-improvement. I presume there's a sort of balance between, you know, you don't want to take things to heart in a way that demoralizes you, but you have to take on board or try and reflect on why you aren't in a particular moment as successful as you'd like to be. Like, have you found yourself walking that tightrope of like, maybe sometimes it's really demoralizing, other times it's really inspiring? Like, do you, do you have a reflection on that? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think like probably one of the biggest reflection moments for me was uh, early on when I was with uh, uh, Jaeger racing, I, I felt I was ready to kind of take a more sports aerodynamics job. And I had an interview with um, a NASCAR team for an aerodynamics position. And it was probably one of the worst interviews I ever had. And it was just quite uh, like, I just remember the interviewer just really grilling me on basic aerodynamics questions. And I was like really struggling and I, I remember just getting out of that interview, just like really demoralized. Um, but then I think after reflecting for a day or two, I realized, you know, now I know the questions that he was asking. These are things I need to learn. And so that, that kind of spurred even actually the want to go to grad school to kind of learn more. So I, I definitely had those moments. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, it's, it's interesting you mentioned aerodynamics and NASCAR because Den's my co-host has just been sort of doing NASCAR on iRacing and his joke, and don't take this offensively because you're sort of an adopted American, uh, is that like they're basically bricks, but presumably there's actually much more going on aerodynamically than uh, than that disparaging uh, remark, which to which I don't associate myself, uh, which <laughs> would, would lead you to believe. Like, is there a lot of aero going on in, in NASCAR? 
Oh, uh, definitely. Like, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I do know that uh, most teams have full CFD and wind tunnel programs, and they're constantly in the wind tunnel um, improving the cars. Um, I- I'd argue that in U.S., like, top-tier motorsport, um, probably NASCAR has the best opportunities for an aerodynamicist right now. Uh, just because, like, IndyCar right now, a lot of it's specs, so... Like there are changes you can do, but I think NASCAR probably gives you a little bit more flexibility. Okay, yeah, I, I did think that when I suggested you kind of are going to go back and I don't know base yourself <laughs> in California. That actually, yeah, maybe NASCAR is the one. So NASCAR isn't spec, even though like to my untrained British eyes, they all look the same. I, I can't believe I said that. I, but, you know. Yeah, so I don't know the full um, rule set. I, I think they are spec, but I think there's a little wiggle room on how you can set up the cars. And I think for oval racing there, uh, I think the, the stability is quite a important thing from my understanding. Um, I, I th- this is where I'm kind of talking out of my depth a little bit, just cause I don't, I think the oval racing is a little bit more um, kind of its own uh, unique demands, but I, from what I've seen on job adverts and just what I've read, I think NASCAR does have a lot of aero development. I mean, uh, going on, uh, maybe not to the same way that you would do in a Formula One car or an Indy car, but uh, I think there is a lot of work on trying to get the cars more stable um, or looking at passing and drafting. Yeah, I can imagine. Gosh, well, um, yeah, there's a whole nother sort of episode there in terms of aero, actual sort of what you do in aero, uh, sort of external aero, I guess, uh, in motorsport, but perhaps we'll leave that for another time. Um, before we go to our pinnacle of questions, which I know uh, is one of the most serious ones our listeners are waiting for me to ask it to you, before we do that, like, can people follow you on uh, social media? Do you post much about sort of your work or motorsport? Or, like, where can we find you? Uh, yeah, so um, on Instagram, I go by F1 Rami. Um, that I don't, I post a little bit here and there about life at Williams, but nothing. Like you're not going to get anything like technical from, from my page. And then a lot of my, my car restoration stuff. Um, and then on LinkedIn, if you just look for Rami Edrisinga, I'm usually happy to uh, connect where I can. So. We'll definitely, uh, we'll look you up F1 Rami. I could see you on Insta. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, yeah, please uh, go and give him, give Rami a follow on uh, Insta. Give him a follow on Twitter there. And um, yeah, please, if you're listening and you're this deep into the episode, we're just hitting the hour mark. Please follow us at Stripping the Dipping or at Strip the Dip, I should say, on all social media. Um, Wherever you're listening to us, be that on YouTube or on your favorite podcast provider of choice, please give us a like or a comment or even a five-star rating if that is your volition. In fact, and Georgie will tell me off for saying this, Give us a one-star rating if that's what you want to do. But at least it's a rating. You know, no, all publicity is good publicity. I'm about to get fired from the show. So the final question, uh, the question of truth. Uh, I'll set it up by asking, like, Rami, I've not met anyone that doesn't like pizza, but I just, in case you don't, do you, do you like pizza, the occasional pizza? Oh, definitely. Okay, brilliant. Okay, right. Well, this catches people off guard. Right. So this is the polemic, the question. It's yes or no answer. Pineapple on pizza. Uh, this question. Uh, so I am definitely on the pineapple on pizza camp. So <laughs> I I feel sorry for my friends who disagree, but uh, I'm sure the Italians in my team right now are like would be quite offended by that question. I mean that answer, but uh, yeah, I I guess coming from California, I, I'm, I've been used to it. So <laughs> you just trash talked a whole sort of 50% of the population by saying you felt sorry for us, you know? <laughs> I have a great life. I, I enjoy my life. I eat pineapple on its own or in a pina colada. Like, it's fine, you know? It's fine. Okay. Uh, right. <laughs> we'll get you back. I don't know how, but we'll get you pineapple on pizza lovers back. And I know that George is laughing somewhere in the background at 2 a.m. in Sri Lanka as we record this. Um, but there we are. Fantastic. Well, look, um, I think that can, that brings us to a close. I mean, is there anything else you want to add before we uh, conclude the show? Um, just to say thank you um, for um, taking the time to interview me and really enjoy the experience. Brilliant. Yeah, well, like, no problem. Uh, it's always great fun. Um, I'm always sort of awestruck by people that follow their passion, first of all. Uh, but second of all, when they follow it and they're actually getting to 
uh, do fantastic things, uh, not least in F1. So we wish you every uh, every success, um, even if you choose to go back to the US and look after your 1975 BMW 2002. Um, maybe he or she needs a name. I don't know. Maybe has it has it has it got a name or, or not yet? <laughs> so the nickname is Sophia. Sophia. Uh, and, okay. Yeah. Uh, no clue why I named it that, but in high school I gave it that name, so it just stuck with it. I can see that. I can see that. Like, okay, well, we won't have a competition to name your BMW, but that that's a great <laughs> little name. Okay, well, look, uh, this has been your co-host uh, F1 Blag. Uh, another episode of season two, Georgie Stripping the Dipping in the Books. What a fantastic time we've had. I'd encourage everyone uh, to check out my previous episode with Ryan Yates. Check out our clips on YouTube. But until next time, I'll see you soon. Goodbye.